It's time for security. Now, what if spam went away entirely? Well, it, it seems to be a problem of authentication. Steve's going to take a look at things we've tried so far and a new technology, DMARC, that promises to fix the spam problem. That's next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 353, recorded May 16th, 2012. DMARC Email Security. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist. With GoToAssist, you can take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users from anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today at gotoassist.com. Click the Try It Free button. Use the offer code SECURITY. And by Ford. Giving customers the power of choice with a full line of electric and hybrid electric vehicles. Learn more about Ford electric vehicle technologies at ford.com slash technology. It's time for our Security Now, the show that covers and protects you Everywhere you go online, thanks to this man here, our explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. Steve is a security expert and also the author of a great utility called Spinrite that everybody needs for hard drive maintenance and recovery. Hello, Steve Gibson. Hey, Leo. Well, 353 podcasts as of today. Add two, though, because we did two off the books. Uh we did indeed. Anybody who was waiting for part two of the Sugar Hill can find it over on the Twit Specials page, um, which we did last Sunday. And, and I'll just mention that the pages at GRC regarding health, which are under our main menu under research, uh, have matured a great deal. I'm getting, and Leo, this is for you too, some fantastic case histories, which I am able to share with their author's permission in every case. I make sure that they don't mind. I'm, I'm, they're anonymous anyway, but really interesting uh, experiences that a lot of our listeners uh, have had. Um, many of the, the, the questions they've had have been answered by these two podcasts. And in some cases, they'd tried it and been discouraged, but now they're encouraged to give another shot or they learned enough that they think maybe they've got a better grip on it now. So uh, anyway, I would commend anyone who's interested to go look at the grc.com slash health and uh, look at low-carb stuff. And there's a bunch of pages, all of the book recommendations. I have a Q&A page, a user's experiences page, and uh, a bunch of resources there. It's very timely because, you know, HBO is doing a four-part uh, special right now yep. called The Weight of the Nation. It's all about how fat we are. There's an obesity epidemic I mean, a huge obesity epidemic that just uh, occurred in the most recent uh, couple of decades. Now, 37% of America is obese, not just overweight, but morbidly so. 
Yeah. So it's a very interesting um, thing. And, and and given the information that you've given us in uh, the last two episodes, and th- by the way, it's on Twit Specials, twit.tv slash specials, uh, episodes 124 and 125 of our Twit Specials. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting to watch these uh, shows because, you know, there's still a considerable amount of uh, confusion it's and you know I was talking to uh, my, f- my physician about this uh, today actually and um, you know he pointed out that doctors MDs are not trained in nutrition they know scant uh, uh, information about it unless they've studied it themselves in some other way there's a lot of misinformation from epidemiological studies which we've talked about before yep. um, which have uh, the the basic fundamental problem of matching causation to correlation which of course as we know correlation is not causation because we're all scientific thinkers here and um he said the real problem is you can't really do long long-term double blind tests on nutrition right you need 10 20 years to know if this because it doesn't kill you nothing none of this kills you right away exactly and it no, not everyone responds identically you yes. can feed two people the same diet, and they will get completely different he responses. Said the, he said the same thing. He said it's kind of you can't you can't be sure uh, of what the effect will be. So you have to do what you're doing, which is you know f- do a lot of research and uh, and try to find uh, something that does work for your body. And uh, you're doing this. I should say under medical supervision. Yes, and I'm I test weekly. I've got weekly charts yeah, of taking all this of very my seriously. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. all my measurements. Um, it's interesting. The, the currently the bottom testimonial, such as it is, or f- feedback. Uh, I got permission to post just this morning, so I put it up. It's from a. Uh, it's a really nicely written uh, piece uh, about how a guy went low carb and reversed his diabetes and high blood sugar, brought his blood pressure down, his HDL, the good cholesterol up, the LDL, the bad cholesterol down, triglycerides way down. I mean, everything was perfect. He goes to his doctor and and the doctor says, my God, congratulations. This is fantastic. You know, you're going to live forever. What are you doing? And he says, Atkins. Oh. And the doctor goes, ah! Yeah, right. I mean, That's terrible said, for you. Don't you said, know? Oh, you're going to ruin your liver. You're going to ruin <laughs> right. your kidneys. Right. And so the guy says, well, how do my liver enzymes look? He says, well, and the doctor says, well, they look perfect. They're fantastic. But you're going to you're going to ruin your liver and you're going to ruin your kidneys. Right. And you're going against the USDA and the FDA, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then he says, well, how how do how does my urinalysis look that would show what's going on with my kidneys? Oh, it's perfect. There's nothing wrong with that. But you're going to ruin your liver. And you're going to ruin your kidneys. I know it's and this, of course, is it's the truth. And so, you know, he was discouraged and thought, well, God, I mean, you know, it, it worried him that somebody who he assumed was an authority would have this opinion, and you know, so you know, one, my favorite set of books are those low carb, the art and science of low carb yeah. living and I low carb. Those. Yeah, good. Yeah, because you know these guys are double PhDs and MDs who who have been studying this, and if nothing else, they give you some objectivity that I don't think that we're finding right now. And so, anyway, it's. Uh, uh, interesting stuff, I think. I, it's fascinating to me. You, you know, and, what, one of the conclusions of this uh, way to the nation is the government needs to regulate all this. And I thought, you know what? The government has mis- mishandled this from day one. Yes. And uh, <laughs> that's part of the reason we're in this fix. And if you, maybe if remember- we just, if people just studied and learned and, 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 and thought and did what you do, which is do this under doctor supervision, I think that uh, 
you can do it yourself. Yeah, and experiment. Um, experiment I yeah. think it might have been in the beginning of Good Calories, Bad Calories that Gary explains how political this process yeah, is alas. in government. Yeah. That in fact, it's not, I mean, the scientists are consulted and then ignored right. because they don't, because the government and the political advisors don't like what the scientists say. So this isn't science-based. It's politically driven, yeah. in fact. Yeah. So As is most politics. <laughs> most of <laughs> most the government is politically driven. Uh, anyway, enough of that. Let's get into the uh, security issues. Today we're going to talk about what? D- what is DMARC? I want to talk about uh, what's been going on quietly and in the background to, to by, by the big players in the industry that are essentially the movers of this towards dealing with the problem of phishing and spam and email spoofing. You know, we're, everyone's just sort of given up at this point. And we know that there's still a huge problem because in, in the same way that I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm noticing sites are now saying you need to have JavaScript turned on because I'm going there initially with it off and because for safety and then I turn it on when I need it. Similarly, and I'm sure you're seeing this too, Leo, um, there are more and more sites that when you do something with them and they need to send you a confirming email, they say, you know, warning, if you do not receive email from us within two minutes, you know, please go look for it in your spam folder because we really have sent it and we're really going to and you need to receive it in order to verify your email address and, you know, it may have trouble getting to you. And and so, you know, this represents a big problem for the Internet. We've had problems with email from the beginning. It is still the number one means for these, you know, large site takeovers. It, we know, for example, that that whole RSA fiasco with them losing the keys began with an employee clicking a link in spoofed email that then allowed an exploit to take hold that got that allowed the bad guys to gain entry into the RSA network. So, so you know, it's it is really important for internet security. Well, there have been some efforts made that have sort of sputtered along. We're going to talk about what they are and why they haven't been able to get the traction that they could, and how, despite the fact that. You know, we haven't been paying any attention. There is an effort ongoing which is moving forward that looks like it's going to give us finally some real relief. And we're about at a tipping point. I imagine, as often is the case on this podcast, we'll be talking about it. You know, it, it, it comes across our radar early. Right. And then uh, maybe six months to a year from now, <laughs> right. suddenly it's going to be. Everybody's oh, talking yeah. About it. yeah. We already know about that. Yeah. We, we, we did that in podcast number 353 a year ago. It's funny how um, much people have stopped talking about spam, not because spam has gone away or is any better. In fact, it's, I, as far as I know, worse. But our tools for fighting it have gotten better, and, uh, and particularly filtering. But this, but this goes beyond filtering. Yes. The, the, okay. Well, well, we'll get to we it. Have, we'll get to we, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Hold on. Hold on there. We're going to get to that in just a bit. And we also have security news. But before we go too much farther down this road, would you mind if I mentioned, uh, I almost want to say a new sponsor, an old sponsor with a really exciting new product. 
Cool. It's good for uh, everybody who's in IT. It's called Go to Assist. You might say, wait a minute, I know about Go to Assist. Well, you know about half of the new Go Assist. Go to Assist. Of course, Go to Assist for many years has been the leader in remote support. You, uh, f- I, in fact, I use it with my mom. You fire up, go to assist. You can support her by going onto her computer, fixing the problem. Usually it's easier to do that than walking her through a fix. It also uh, supports unattended support and so forth. But go to assist has been beefed up big time by some recent acquisitions from Citrix. Citrix is an interesting company. Uh, it's, this, is a, this is kind of a new model, I think, but I like it. Uh, they basically, without letting you know, <laughs> they're constantly improving their products and adding features all the time. You know, we talk about go to meeting, and suddenly they add uh, high def video. They don't charge you more. Uh, they don't. You know, there's it. it just and so if you use a, if you use a Citrix product like Go to Assist, Go to Meeting, Go to My PC, you'll just notice these incremental improvements all the time. Um, and it's just it's kind of magic. So Go to Assist, they acquired a company that lets them do um, remote monitoring as well as remote support. And they've added this big piece for anybody who manages uh, IT, consults, or particularly if you're a managed service provider or would like to be. GoToAssist now has built-in monitoring. The monitoring module can monitor server health, desktop health, IT assets, complete inventory, including software, Track network usage. And this is the thing Russell, our IT guy, likes a lot. He, By the way, Russell is a managed uh, support provider. He uh, is a three-man IT shop. He's a consultant for us. I wish I could hire him, but he's doing too well by, him, uh, by himself. So we, we have like 10 or 20 hours a week with him. But he has 855 individual clients. Not people, businesses. 855. He can do that because of this tool which lets him be proactive. The other day, he came over and said, I'm putting in the toner cartridge. I said, what? He said, oh, well, you don't know, but the printer let me know that you were low. Your hard drives will say they're getting full. Your PCs will say, oh, there's a problem. And the IT guy fixes it before you even know. This makes you an IT hero. Remote alert notification by email, IM or SMS. Uh, they've got uh, little bugs, little monitoring um, devices for every kind of hardware, every operating system. You can uh, completely customize your dashboard, by the way, branded as well. So it doesn't look like it's Citrix or go to assist. So it looks like it's you. That's okay. You take all the credit. They've got patch management that works with Windows Server Update Services automatically. Completely automate your support. And, of course, they've still got that great best-of-class remote support. And all of this is free for the next 30 days. Right now, I want you to visit gotoassist.com and use the offer code SECURITY to try this. You know, browse around on the site and read about the new GoToAssist. This is mind-boggling. Talk about a major upgrade, and they didn't upgrade the price. So if you're already a GoToAssist customer, give it a try, take a look. Oh, my goodness. They've really got a, an amazing story to tell. I told them you should change the name, and they decided not to. They were originally going to – they were thinking about calling it Go to Manage because it's really about managing. Um, but they decided to stick with the brand that they like. So I have to work harder and explain to you this is not your father's go-to assist. This is brand new and really exciting. Best way to find out 
Do what Russell did. Give it a 30-day trial. Go to assist.com. He was using a, a product that costs, I can't remember what he said, eight times more. And he's moving his whole company over to this. Go to assist.com. Offer code security. Try it for 30 days. I think you will understand what we're talking about. All right, before we get into DMARC, Mr. Gibson. Yeah, we've got just a little bit. I don't know. You know, sometimes a week just gives us so many news topics to talk about that we barely get to the show. And in fact, sometimes grumpy people will send me a tweet saying it took 55 minutes before we actually got into the content. It's like, hey, folks, you know, news and security updates and and conversation about, you know, the week's events was the original concept for this podcast. And uh, we added all of that other content afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, I spend as much time, well, not as much time, but lots of time. Uh, wanting to make sure I keep everybody current with well, things that are going but on. But see, that's why this show could be any length at all. You get to choose yes. the length because it it expands <laughs> to fit the needs. Oh, and and I also get tweets saying, okay, you know, love the podcast. Could you do it daily? <laughs> uh, no. Scrape me off. Scrape me off the floor. <laughs> I can uh, tell you right now. No. Uh, but weekly's yeah. good. Weekly's good. I mean, you should be. Uh, weekly's good. That's just right. Yes. So um, Chrome has moved itself to version 19. And uh, in the blog yesterday, uh, quoting from the blog, they said, say you found an awesome recipe on your work computer while working hard at the office. But when you get back home, you can't quite remember if it was two teaspoons of baking soda or two teaspoons of baking powder. (laughs) Big difference. I'll take your word for that, Leo. Wouldn't it yeah, be you're cool? You're such a cook. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if you could pull up the same recipe on your home computer with one click? With today's stable release of Chrome, you can. When you're signed into Chrome, and we'll explain what that is in a second, your open tabs are synced across all your devices. So you can quickly access them from the other devices menu, which is a new menu, on the new tab page. If you've got Chrome for Android beta, you can open the same recipe tab right on your phone when you run out to the store for more ingredients. The back and forward buttons will even work, so you can pick up browsing right where you left off. So that means they are even syncing the history of the tab that is now being being bridged by these devices. And so then I thought, okay, what does signing into Chrome mean? And they said, signing into Chrome brings your bookmarks apps, history, and other settings to all your devices. Anything you update on one device instantly updates everywhere else. And your Chrome stuff is safe in case anything happens to your computer. It's your web. Take it with you. Of course, you know, and Google too. <laughs> Very nice. But so, yeah, I, you know, there, I'm, I'm wishing the Chrome wasn't just becoming so neat looking because I'm so happy. <laughs> you're feeling you're feeling bad now, huh? I well, I'm feeling torn. I'm feeling yeah. pressure because I'm so happy with Firefox. And but with, uh, you're a tab. You're a heavy tab user. Oh boy, I am, and that's the problem. Is I've got 48 open right now. Oh my god! <laughs> and and the and I can and side tabs were taken away as we talked right. about before because they decided well it was just experimental and people screamed so much. But they said, don't worry. We, we understand there are people who organize their lives with tabs, as I do. It's just my – it's my things to come back to later list. 
Um, but I still like the way Chrome manages memory. When you close a tab, I, like I watch my memory and it's like, bang, mem- memory is returned to me because Chrome runs every single page in its own separate process as part of their their interpage security isolation, which is different, entirely different than, than what Mozilla does with Firefox. There's just one Firefox.exe. But when you've got Chrome running, there's about seven Chrome exes with additional ones for more pages because it's the way they've they've set up their architecture and then those of course communicate in a in a safe way so yeah i mean google i i love it that there's a strong commercial drive behind google's wanting to keep making chrome better and better and that it's that you know that google's doing it microsoft just seems to have you know stalled in innovation land and so like you know they're, they're oh, not yeah. even IE's not, i don't know where he's going yeah yeah uh, I got a tweet from an old friend of ours, Alex Niehaus. Oh. Remember Alex? Yeah. Uh, he was, was it Astaro? Yeah, he was at Astaro. Yeah, in the, in he the was a guy. Day. He was a guy. He was our first, got our first ads on the whole network, which was Astaro for uh, Security Now. Yep. He tweeted, and I just wanted to share this to remind listeners. He said uh, at SGGRC, web.tweetdeck.com. Now turns on both SSL and SPDY indicators in Chrome hmm. on my Mac. It's beautiful and fast. So that means that Twitter has it at their end and TweetDeck has it at its end. And I just want to remind people, I, I'm a TweetDeck you know, diehard I, because I'm so, I just have it open on a monitor watching you know with like six columns open keeping an eye on things and you know often replying to people who tweet i do need to remind people that i i only am willing to do a dm a, you know I, I can't i don't want to clutter up my feed with lots of at mentions so if somebody wants a reply from me you've got to follow me and then you know if it's a tweet a tweet that i have time for and and can and and want to reply to, I'll do that with a direct message. But I can't direct message people who aren't following me, and, and that's a good thing for, for keeping uh, Twitter spam down. But often I'll see something, I'll go, oh, and I'm excited to respond. I feel, I, you know, I do a direct message, and it says recipient not following. It's like, oh, okay, well, so I, I can't reply when I otherwise would have. I mean, I, when I did, and it just got blocked. So for anyone who wonders why they never heard back, that, that could be why. Um. And I just have, before we get into our content, another interesting spinwright tip, different from what we've talked about before, um, from a Sam Feinberg in Palo Alto who wrote on April 26th, so just last month. He said, two of the computers in our household, my son and wife's, were running really slow. My son's computer was even overheating and shutting off occasionally, primarily when he played Minecraft. The computers weren't that old, so I was contemplating re-imaging them. In preparation for that, I ran a fresh backup on my son's computer and decided to run Spinrite on the drive. As I was running Spinrite, I noticed the drive got very hot, and there were millions of seek and ECC correctable errors. Running on a similar computer that wasn't slow, there were very few seek errors, and the drive stayed much cooler. So I did an image copy of his drive to a new one, installed it, and the new drive is working great, faster, and no overheating issues. After seeing that, 
I ran SpinRed on my wife's computer. It also had millions of seek errors. Once again, I replaced the drive and it solved that computer's problems too. So in this case, SpinRed wasn't needed to fix a problem, but it led me straight to the right solution. And what was happening there is this is again one of the one of the things I mentioned last week I talked about how the cable you know subtle problems with cabling could be inducing errors which Spinrite shows you when you're running it in that cabling errors count similarly unlike any other software on the planet there's nothing else that that I've ever seen that shows you the error corrections that are actually being done on the fly which are hidden from you and also problems that the drive has finding the sectors. The reason there were all these overheating problems is that the heads were servoing a lot, and that's where you use up a lot of energy. So, again, Spinrite on its, on its statistics page, it's actually on, on the SMART, the, the Self-Monitoring and Advanced Reporting Technology page, where it's dynamically looking inside the drive and bringing this real-time data out and what what Sam did was exactly right. He looked at a similar machine with like the you know the same make and model drive and saw what it was doing, and that gave him a baseline to compare the other drives, which were clearly misbehaving. And so essentially, they were at some point going to fail. And you know, Spinrite was saying, "Look at what's going on here. This is important." And so he was able to make you know swap them out for. For replacements that just don't have that problem. So, you know, another aspect of SpinRide, really that the preventative maintenance and, and monitoring side, which can really come in handy. Really neat. Uh, let's see here. I think we want to get to uh, the, the matter at hand. Yeah. And then so, uh, I'll interrupt you in a, in a few minutes. Okay. Because I want to do another uh, ad right away. Perfect. Yeah. So DMARC is a somewhat awkward acronym I don't know how the military gets these amazingly cool acronyms, Leo, but somehow they always just have these, like, okay, how did you get that? It's a it's a retronym where they start with the, the name and then they make up what the letters do, maybe. I don't yeah, know. and this sort of feels that way, too. Like, you know, demarcation, demark, D-M-A-R-C. Yeah. But this is kind of awkward. Domain-based message authentication reporting and conformance. It's like, eh, okay. So, okay, so here's what's going on. There have been for actually a decade, if you can believe it, a couple specifications that were supposed to solve the problem of spoofed email. We've talked many times in many different contexts about email spoofing, that it is, it's a big problem because the, the headers in email can be set by the sender, so it takes a real expert to examine the headers and you know few users are and in fact you know if a if a piece of email bounces around a lot each bounce appends headers onto the beginning so the the order of the headers is in the reverse order of the path the email took and you know it ends up being complex and boy, headers these days are just so full of gobbledygook. It's, you know, makes your eyes cross to look at it. It's not like, you know, our grandparents' headers. So uh, uh, the effort has been to come up with a way of preventing spoofing. So one approach 
was a so-called Sender Policy Framework, SPF, which is, is 10 years old, which surprised me. It just didn't feel like it had been around that long. But it's a, it's a, it's a clever solution for, again, leveraging DNS. One of the things we're seeing is other new applications for the domain name system where new record types or repurposing of existing record types, which is what we do here because adding new record, new record types to DNS requires, you know, multi-year standards and old servers won't, won't support the new types. And so that, that's going to be a, you know, a huge drag for something not DNS related. But reusing existing record types, for example, the text record, which is what these systems use, that's easy. You don't have to change anything because all DNS servers have long understood what a text record is. It's just sort of a free form text record. You can have as many of them as you want. And you can say, give me the text records for google.com and it sends them to you. So, and so, so this is another reason why layering security on DNS is a good thing because this domain name system is increasingly going to become the master lookup index, domain-based lookup of information for the net. Traditionally, all you could look up was IP addresses based on a domain name or the reverse of that, domain names from an IP address. But as we, as the net matures, we're, we're seeing new applications for this same, this same system. In fact, GRC uses it to distribute the version numbers of our software. You're able to say uh, application.dns or .version.grc.com and you, the IP address that it returns is the latest major and minor version number of our software. So I do that because it's, it generally passes through firewalls. Uh, it's super lightweight, just a UDB packet out and a UDB packet back. And, and it's a, a nice little way of getting some information from GRC. So, you know, there, there are increasing number of things that use DNS. And, you know, so securing that translates into all kinds of benefits for, you know, as we come up with additional uses for it. So what SPF, the, the, the decade-old sender policy framework does, is it's a way for the owner of the domain, and that's the other kind of key concept here, is that, the, is that the, the notion of who controls the information. The reason we can rely on, on DNS, for example, the, get the correct IPs for Google, is that, that Google controls the google.com domain you know and all of the all of the enforcements are in place for that to happen you know i control my my own dns server or servers that that then supply the data records to level 3 that provides me with my connectivity and so people actually to, um, ask the level 3 servers for grc information which which they get behind the scenes from from me but the point is that I can have that information say anything I want. So when SPF came out, I immediately adopted it. I, I added records because it took like five minutes. It was easy to do. Um, the idea is the recipient 
of a piece of email, and I don't mean the the end user recipient, but the SMTP server that the that the end user is using. So, for example, if you were if you were a Gmail user, then it would be you know the the mail.google.com server, or it, it's the it's the server that that we connect to as clients to to collect our mail, whether it's IMAP or POP protocol. That server, when it's having a conversation, receiving email, the email says, I'm from Google.com. Well, the, the receiving server is able to, right then, do a DNS query at, for the text records for Google.com. And among them will be an SPF record, which specifies the range of valid IPs or an enumerated list of IPs. There are a number of formats, or it can even give a domain name for a referral that is the valid originators of this email. And, and the idea being that then this receiving SMTP server can, can check the IP that, that, it, that this connection is from and we know that IPs cannot be spoofed, IP addresses, because, because they're point-to-point links. And part of the TCP handshake is a multi, multi-directional packet exchange specifically for the purpose of verifying that packets can go between the two IPs. So unlike UDP that is one-directional with no verification, TCP has verification. So... The receiving server, the, the, the server receiving the email, no, has absolutely knows the IP that it's connected to. And if it receives that IP from that domain's SPF record, its, it's declaration of what's, what machines' IPs are, are valid senders, then it's able to verify that email on the spot because... It knows it's connected there. They, the, the, the person who controlled the domain has specified this IP is valid. And so it cannot be spoofed from someone else. Normally, it, without this kind of verification, there, there, there's nothing to prevent some random server anywhere else on the planet connecting up to, to Google.com and sending email absolutely as if or, or I'm sorry, connecting up to your SMTP server and sending email that looks exactly like the email coming from Google and declaring that it's from Google.com. Because m- most times, email servers are not the same IP as like a the, the main web domain server. And there is a provision in DNS for having a mail server declared as mail.google.com. But, you know, oftentimes there, there's big networks, there's load balancers, there, there, all kinds of things make this more complex. So, so this was the very simple concept behind the old sender policy framework technology. Now, the benefit of it was that it was trivial to implement. All anybody had to do who wished to to authenticate the email they were sending was add a simple text record 
to your DNS server. And at the SPF site, there was even a little helper that were, where you could specify the parameters that you wanted to use. Like, if it doesn't match, do you want me to drop the mail? Do you want, you know, like, I don't know, do, do you want me to, to call it spam? You know, how seriously to take a failure to, to, to match and so forth. Um, like, is, is it advisory only or is it serious? There are a number of parameters. So you were able to set those, press a button, and it would give you, it would build for you a little SPF record that you could just then drop into your, your DNS server records. The problem with that is that traditionally, and that's certainly more the case 10 years ago than now, email was a store and forward technology. And that store and forwardness was a source of great abuse. But that was the original concept of email. The idea being very similar to the way we have packet switching on the internet. We've talked about that often where you just drop a packet randomly onto the net anywhere with an IP address and the the job of routers is to bounce it from one router to the next, always aiming it towards its destination. Similarly, email sort of operating at, instead of operating at the, at the link layer there, operating at the application layer, email was the same way. You might have email bounce a couple times between SMTP servers. There, there were servers that would accept email from anyone and, and then initiate a connection and try to forward it, a so-called store and forward. And what, what happened was there were many servers that were open servers. The open relays is what they were called. And, and th this whole notion of store and forward was like relaying email from one server to the next. And in the old days, before spam was a problem, all, typically servers were all like this. They would happily e relay email um, on behalf of someone else because once, once upon a time, we were all good guys. And there were no, you know, creepy bad people hanging out, not out on the Internet. So that became abused immediately. One of the first tricks of the spammers is they would, they would find a so-called open relay and they would dump their spam there. If, you know, if their own servers had been blacklisted by their IP address so that nobody would accept any email from them anymore, they said, okay, fine. So they would... Hunt, they would just search around the internet for so-called open relays and they would dump their email on that machine and then it, doing its job, would forward it to its destination, which was typically a spam recipient who wasn't happy. And of course, you then, you, the open relay, would end up getting blacklisted because now your IP was generating spam even though you yourself weren't generating spam. So over the years, this got shut down. It's very rare now and it's configured a it's considered a an SMTP email server configuration failure if you have an open relay. It's like, oh my God. I mean and actually you find out about it pretty quickly because there are there are there are bots and things that are roaming around looking for them. And you'll generally get if you've got like an admin account on your email server or something, you'll you'll get email saying you know, warning that you have, you are running an open relay. And oftentimes you'll be getting spam complaints and all kinds of problems. So that's been bolted down. So the original problem with the sender policy framework is when you think about it, is it was completely incompatible 
with mail forwarding. The, the recipient is verifying the, I, the connection IP address of the sender domain. So that implies it has to be point to point. That is, it has to be from Google as the originator to your server for, and your, for your server to say, to look at the IP addresses that Google is advertising through its SPF record as valid and say, yes, we believe this is Google. If, if there were a bounce in between, if there was any forwarding going on to some third-party SMTP server, well, the sender policy framework would filtering would reject it because the connection IP would be other than what Google is advertising. So 10 years ago, this was a problem with SPF. It's not a problem today because nobody is relaying email anymore. We've got robust networks. We've got, you know, super inexpensive hardware. We've got load balancing and all these other, you know, solutions to the original problem of like someone's server being down. So you'd send the mail and park it somewhere until their email server came back up and then you'd be able to get it over. I mean, so, so the relaying is shut down and suddenly SPF has a real chance to work. Now, there was a, a second effort, which uh, Google adop adopted early, which was called DKIM, which is an acronym, stands for Domain Keys Identified Mail. And it's, it's a somewhat complex specification, but what it is, is pretty simple. Uh, listeners to the podcast will understand it immediately. It is simply using public key crypto to digitally sign all outgoing email. So anything originating from a, a DKIM signing SMTP server is, is signed using that server's private key. So, and, and, and this is compatible with with like other signing, for example, you could be using uh, GPG, PGP, whatever, to to sign your own email. But then that's 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 then wrapped in an envelope with all the headers and and delivery information. Then then that is signed by uh, as as the final phase by the server sending the mail out using the server's private key. What that means is that the recipient of the email is able to verify what they do once again using DNS is they look up that the, the apparent sending domains DKIM public key. So the public key is published in that domain's DNS record. Once again, in a text record, in a specified format, and all these have, you know, well-established uh, specifications. And so the recipient is able to get the, the matching public key and use that to verify the, 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 that domain's signing of the envelope of email. And since, since the private key is never disclosed, there's no danger there's no way to to for any third party to to falsify that signature it's you know full on state of the art crypto strength and 
and solid. So the, those two different solutions have existed, but they haven't gained traction or they've been doing so very quietly and silently. One of the problems was uh, the this, this so-called YAP problem, yet another protocol, where it's like, you know, overworked administrators are like, you know, they hear about this. It's like, oh, boy, you know, well, we, all, we, we have other things to worry about right now. Um, also, there was a problem of very complex infrastructures. For example, you know, these large ISPs have massive networks, huge blocks of IPs. They may be adding blocks of IPs for other purposes. They were worried about false positive rejections where if they if they change some configuration so that mail their own legitimate mail would, would now be routed somewhere else and come out of somewhere else suddenly you know that wasn't going to be published you know dns would need to be refreshed over time so there was just sort of this sense of you know wait a minute you know this we're not sure that it's worth the trouble that that it, it's getting us and also note that this system inherently requires that senders and receivers collaborate together. That is, the senders are saying, I'm a test, in the case of SPF, I'm attesting that all valid email comes from this IP. But if the receiver doesn't check, doesn't care, then, you know, this is, I mean, it's inexpensive to make that assertion in your DNS records, but you're not going to get any benefit from it Unless, unless somebody on the other end takes the trouble to check and does the right thing with the results. Well, very quietly, five years ago, in 2007, PayPal did pioneer this approach. They worked out a system with Yahoo and later with Gmail to collaborate this way. And the results were extremely effective. It led to a, a, to a very significant decrease in suspected fraudulent email that was purporting to be from PayPal being accepted by those receivers. So, so I mean, the, the concept is golden. It absolutely works. And so, what, so five years ago, PayPal was having this problem that they, their, you know, their email domain was being actively spoofed and Yahoo Mail users and Gmail users were, were you know, having a big problem. PayPal was having a problem with, with, with those users. Now, it, they were having a problem, of course, with lots of other users, too. The reason that Yahoo Mail and Gmail were singled out is they were aggregation points. There were a ton of people using Yahoo and a ton of people using Gmail. So... Just by fixing those two recipients, by, by, by getting PayPal, I mean, by, by getting those two to agree to honor PayPal's assertions about sender policy and DKIM signed email, all of the users of Yahoo Mail and Gmail got fraud protection for the, for, for the PayPal domain. So... So it worked there because we had, you know, one person with a big problem was able to convince two recipients with huge email user bases to go along with them, and it worked. The other problem that both SPF and DKIM have had is that there hasn't been any 
built-in feedback. There has, there, you know, like I've had SPF records at GRC for a decade and I don't know if it's done any good. I don't know if they work. I don't know if <laughs> it, any email has been like filtered out or, or prevented. I like the idea that in theory, if somebody checked my SPF records and saw that, you know, only email coming from this IP was valid, then grc.com could not be spoofed. Email from me could not be spoofed. So I thought, okay, that's a good thing, but I don't know if it ever got used. I, don't, I have no idea. So, so there's that problem, which, again, it, there's enough adoption resistance and inertia that unless there's a, a clear benefit, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, admins have enough emergency stuff to worry about. They, you know, they're not looking for more work to do. They're just trying to stay ahead of, of what's going on right now. So what is little known is that because SPF and to a lesser degree DKIM are so easy to adopt, SPF just requires adding a couple records to DNS. DKIM requires upgrading your SMTP server to digitally sign outgoing email. And, and again, 10 years ago, as we know, public key crypto wasn't free, so so there was some there was some expense in terms of computation overhead to sending out a piece of email that was digitally that was signed with a public key. Uh, today, that's just you know we've got so much computing power. How many cores does your chip have? That that's just not a problem. So adoption has been growing, and. At this point, at least well, a little bit more than 50% of all domains are actually supporting either SPF or DKIM. So, again, not near 100, but more than half. And in terms of mail volume, 85% of email has either SPF records associated with its actual domain originator or they're digitally signed and in fact just this morning i got some facebook notification that someone who i know knows somebody else i don't know what it is but anyway (laughs) (laughs) because i keep trying to turn this stuff off yeah good luck they keep turning it on yeah they do it's so annoying yeah um anyway so so this is you know so i'm i'm it's got like uh uh, DKIM hyphen signature, and then a whole bunch of gobbledygook in the header, which I now know is, for example, it says A equals RSA hyphen SHA-256. So that says it's RSA public key crypto with, with the SHA-256, the, the secure hash algorithm, 256-bit signed, and then the, the valid domain, D equals facebookmail.com, and then a whole bunch of stuff. So, I mean, it goes on and on and on. There's like a block of, of gobbledygook, but that's all the, the signing of this. Oh, and I got a kick out of this. It also says X hyphen Facebook colon from Zuckmail. It's like, yes, well, we know yeah, where they came from. Zuckmail. I like Zuck that. Mail. <laughs> so, okay. So, I, I've sort of narrowed this down to four problems. Um, uh, many senders, as I mentioned, have a complex email environment with many systems sending email. 
often including third-party service providers. You know, some large domains, you know, sub out their email handling to somebody else. So it's, it's coming from their domain, but it's being routed through somebody else. So ensuring that every message can be authenticated using SPF or DKIM is a complex task, particularly given that these environments are in a perpetual state of flux. You know, it's like, oh, let's switch over to this third-party company. It's like, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, our, our authentication is going to break if we do that. You know, that means, so it's like, oh, you know, is it worth risking that? Also, um, if a domain owner sends a mix of messages, some of which can be authenticated and others that can't, then email receivers are forced to, that is the receivers of the email, are forced to discern between the legitimate messages that don't authenticate and the fraudulent messages that also don't authenticate. By nature, spam algorithms are error-prone and need to constantly evolve to respond to the changing tactics of spammers. The result is that some fraudulent messages will inevitably make their way to the end user's inbox. In other words, you know, it's the typical, you know, soft filter or heuristic filter. It's, you know, good messages are going to get rejected and some bad messages aren't going to get rejected because we don't have absolute authentication today. But it looks like we're headed for that quickly or soon. Senders get very, and this is key, senders get very poor feedback on their email authentication deployments, which is to say none. Unless messages bounce back to the sender, there's no way to determine how many legitimate messages are being sent that cannot be authenticated. So like, you know, how would I know if somebody was rejecting my email? You know, there's just no way to know. Um, Or even the scope of the fraudulent emails that are spoofed in the sender's domain. So, for example, again, if people are sending random email as if from grc.com, how would I ever know that? There's no way to know. So this makes troubleshooting mail authentication issues very difficult, particularly in mail environments which are increasingly complex. And finally, even if a sender has buttoned down their mail authentication infrastructure, and all of their legitimate messages can be authenticated, email receivers are wary about rejecting unauthenticated messages because they can't be sure there is not some stream of legitimate messages that are going unsigned. And so, again, the recipient is like, well, okay, uh, some of these are coming in signed, but these look pretty good over here that are not signed, Maybe they're coming from a new server that, you know, Facebook set up and they don't have authentication in place yet. So, so, you know, all of this just created some, some, you know, enough uncertainty that it's just kept people from moving forward. But the the big guys, Google with Gmail, Facebook, LinkedIn, PayPal, Bank of America, American Greetings, CloudMark, Comcast, Fidelity Investments, Microsoft with Hotmail, ReturnPath, and Yahoo are all on this now. They're all part of this DMARC effort, and they have they've determined, you know, where this stuff is mature enough, the specs are there, they work, the technology 
has has been moved into servers. Remember that SPF really didn't require any on the sending end, but it certainly does require it on the receiving end. The the SMTP server receiving has to have new technology for for going and getting the apparent sender's SPF records and checking the IPs and checking the the the, the connection. So that's taken some time for those features to be you know, to be added to, to standard email servers. And the same as the case with, with DKIM on both ends. The here, the, the sending server has to digitally sign outgoing email and the receiving server has to be able to, to verify the, the, the digital signature from the apparent recipient. I mean, from, from the apparent sender. So, so we're to the point now where... The software technology is in place. It's now time to solve these these lingering problems. So for senders, adding this kind of robust authentication requires work and the return on investment has been uncertain. And for the receivers, just having some authentication doesn't help much. I mean, what we need is to be able to say, okay, we believe that that the domain in question is asserting that it's got control of its outgoing mail and we're going to we're absolutely going to take action on failure so the solution is that senders absolutely authenticate all outbound mail and assert that to receivers all right so a bunch of smart guys oh yes let's pause As we we explain how this solution might be implemented. How about that? It's always, you know, it often comes down to authentication, but it's it's, the devil's in the details. How do we authenticate? Um, We were talking uh, with Bill Harris, uh, who was a former CEO of PayPal and runs a company called Personal Capital. And we were talking about micropayments and online payments and... And uh, and getting rid of money, and it's really an authentication problem. How do I know you're you, and how do you know I'm me? Once we've authenticated, that's the problem with credit card fraud: is weak authentication methods. Well, and it's why I went nuts over Stina's YubiKey. Right? Is this like, hey, here's you know, here's something to to replace passwords, which right. are such poor authentication. Well, let's go to the solution in a second, but first a word about electric vehicles. Do you even have a car? Yeah, you've seen it <laughs> with my little grc.com plate on the well, back. That's right. I saw it in Ontario many years ago. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, it seems like, I mean, it seems like you don't go far afield. You'd probably be a good candidate for an electric vehicle, actually. Actually, that's very true. 76-mile range, that'd be enough for you. Get you to L.A. and back. You live in Irvine. Uh, get you to work and back since you work at home. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the... Um, the new 2012 Focus Electric, which is now available at EV certified for dealers. It is a 100% electric gas-free car. That means zero emissions, no carbon monoxide, no carbon dioxide, no nothing. Well, as long as you have not been eating beans. No, Yes, you're not allowed. No flatulence allowed. <laughs> no, that's your own problem. <laughs> you, and by the way, these ve- these vehicles, these electric engines are very robust and reliable. Never needs an oil change, obviously. They've put in the best batteries you can find, state-of-the-art now, which is one of the reasons you get 76 miles in range. 
You also get what they uh, call MPGE. I get, I'm guessing the E is equivalent because there's no gas, there's no gallons, but they do have a way of measuring, and they and this is the best city rating in its class, the best in class driving range, the best in class charge time, and the most fuel efficient five passenger vehicle in America. Hundred ten miles per gallon E. Hundred ten. And it charges in about four hours when you have the 240-volt home charging station. You don't have to have that, by the way. You can use your regular 120AC. It just takes longer. Most people will get the uh, charging station from Leviton installed. Uh, and by the way, this is half the time it takes to charge the next biggest competitor. Um, and then next year, the 2013 Ford Fusion Energy Plug-in, early in 2013, which will have a combined fuel efficiency rating of over 100 MPGE. That's the one, if you have longer range, you might want, because it goes electric uh, as long as it can, and then when you need to go farther, it, it starts up the gas engine. Regenerative braking means you get even more range. Every time you come to a stop, it charges up that battery. Over 90% of the energy that would normally be lost in friction and heat is sent back to the battery pack. And then they've updated the Ford Sync with My Ford Touch. There's a special EV version to help you maximize your range. You could choose the most eco-friendly driving route, remotely control vehicle charge and preconditioning settings with a, a special a smartphone app, monitor the battery state of charge, maximize energy efficiency. You get access uh, to a Ford website, My Ford Mobile, in addition to the smartphone app. So you can take a look at your vehicle's status. It actually uploads it to the web. <laughs> State of charge, current range. You could program charge settings, download vehicle data for analysis. They have a value charging feature uh, powered by Microsoft that lets you take advantage of off-peak or reduced rates from your utility without any complicated setup process. You basically push a button. Th this is, you know, Ford uh, got some heat for not having an electric vehicle, you know, right away. Other companies did. What Ford did, and I think this was the right decision, is they decided to really take their time and get it right. And that's why you're getting this second generation, maybe third generation EV, the 2012 Ford Focus Electric. And next year, the Ford, Fucus, Ford Fusion Energy Plug-In Hybrid. The Ford Fusion Energy Plug-In Hybrid. Find out more about these Ford vehicles and all the great technologies in every Ford vehicle at Ford.com slash technology or drive one at an EV certified Ford dealer near you today. We thank Ford for being so supportive of all of our shows here at uh, Twit. So uh, authentication is the solution, but how do yeah. we achieve it? Probably the biggest thing that DMARC brings is closing the loop, providing a means for allowing senders who wish to authenticate a means of verifying what's happening out in the world before they commit all the way. So the DMARC, D-M-A-R-C spec, it solidifies and unifies the existing SPF and DKIM specifications and also provides some configuration guidelines to, because the specs were broad and gave a lot of latitude. So DMARC is saying, look, you know, we, 
We didn't know what we were going to need initially. Turns out this is what people use and this is enough. So, so here's how we want you to configure SPF and DKIM. So the beauty is all we're talking about is some, some additional technology added to um, our email systems, but basically built on, built on these existing established standards. Um, there's a, a new DNS resource record. And again, rather than inventing their own, which would again require all DNS servers everywhere to be updated, they're just going to add a new resource record of the TXT, a, a text resource record, which is just, you know, anything you want to ha- have it say. They, the text record specifies the sender's policies, and they have this weird word. They use it. They call it alignment. For some reason, alignment types is either strict or relaxed. So you know how how strict you want the the matching to be. Um, then they have a disposition for the incoming for any incoming problems, whether whether the sender wants the receiver to quarantine records that don't match to reject them outright or just to monitor. And finally, this text record contains a, and this is where the loop gets closed, the, the URIs or URLs for sending reports both of, of failure and aggregate daily summaries. And the DMARC spec then defines this aggregate reporting format where it's, it's a, a, a daily sum in an XML, so machine-readable, machine-parsable format, uh, which is re- deliberately redacted for, for the sake of privacy. That is, they want to just accumulate statistics, not specifics about individual email. And so the, a- the daily aggregate reports um, are per apparent from sender domain um, and but they do not contain delivery disposition and do not contain individual email addresses but the idea is that they they by sending domain they they give that they feed back the authentication results for the dkim signature verification and the spf ip verification um, along with the the, the, the successes or failures of the matching and specify the policy action which was requested and taken. So what this means is that, that a company that d- was deciding, as the, all these big companies I just listed are, and, and we know that SPF pl- and or DKIM is now deployed in about 85% of the volume of emails on the internet and about 50% of the domains on the internet. So the next step is to, to take the, the server technology a bit further with this DMARC spec, or which by the way, has been submitted. It's for, it's, it was finalized just this January, a few months ago. Uh, it has been submitted to the IETF, the internet engineering task force for ratification 
and publish publication as an internet RFC. So it's going to be a formal specification uh, moving forward for email on the internet. And so the idea would be that a company that wanted to lock down their email would would upgrade their email servers to support the DMARC spec and add the DMARC text record to their DNS, which is simple to do. And for, for example, initially, they would say, well, monitor. Don't, don't reject, don't quarantine, don't block, don't do anything, but we want reports. So they would put their whole system in monitor mode and then all of the recipients who also supported DMARC at the other end, remember, this is inherently, to, for this to work, it's got to be resend, sender and recipient both have to be on the same page. They both need to be supporting this. And, you know, it's a fail-soft solution. That is, if if either when one doesn't, you just don't get authentication. But it, it's looking like email is a significant enough backbone of the Internet and companies, as, especially as, you know, we're doing finance more and more with banking and PayPal and, and, and email and also social networking and where, where, you know, link spoofing and phishing is a problem. It's, if we can fix email, this is a huge step forward for Internet security. So, so the problem with deployment gets fixed by, by creating an ongoing feedback system where – where initially the system's in monitor mode, again, on an individual-by-individual individual sender basis. So, so if I were to deploy it, I'd, I'd upgrade my email server. And in fact, the next server that I choose, I'll, this will be a requirement for me, is that it be able to support the, this protocol because this is clearly where we need to go. Then I would say monitor. And any email outbound from us that goes to a domain that also supports DMARC, they would be querying our DNS records, see that we support DMARC, determine what our, what our policies are. And for example, initially I'd be saying just monitor and report. And so I would get back to the, uh, to the domain and URI that I specify. I would receive a daily report from everyone of the domains that we touched that day of what they thought about our proposed authentication. And so for a huge environment like Facebook, where, you know, massive network, you know, global servers all over the place, they want, in order for them to confidently say reject before they get to that point, they want to be able to monitor. They want to see that everything's working and then even when they are in reject mode where where they're saying to people do you know we 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 were monitoring for a while we verified that everything's working there is no mail coming out of us which is not authenticated there's no way for mail to get out of us without authentication being added now we want everybody to just drop any email that is being spoofed with our domain that doesn't authenticate, but we still want reports. And so suddenly we get something that we've never had before, which is a, a, an ongoing um, reporting of fraudulent email going to 
third-party servers, which support DMARC. The third-party server would get inbound email spoofed from Facebook, for example, check with Facebook's DNS. Remember, the DNS is caching also. So, in fact, they, they may well, uh, you know, major domains like Google and Facebook and so forth, these, these servers would have those text records in their local caches. So no traffic overhead is being required at all. So they would, they, they would say, wait a minute, this isn't digitally signed. Facebook has said, reject it if it's not. And they would aggregate the information. They would log the connecting IP of the, of the, of the spamming, fraudulent, spoofing server and send that to Facebook. So now Facebook begins getting daily records of the IPs that are originating spam spoofing them that they've never had before. So, so this, this robustly authenticates email. It, it, it safely allows the system to be deployed. It, you know, and again, because it's DNS, if there was ever a problem, the admins could switch back to monitoring mode instantly, essentially, or over the, 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 the expiration time of the DNS records which are being used. And so it, it's flexible. It's under sender control. And closing the loop, generating reports, is really valuable real-time information. So potentially, once we get there and, and bring up authentication to a level that we have never had before, the, the people behind this are are hoping that this will enable new forms of communication over email because it won't be something where you're looking at anything that comes in with a great deal of skepticism. And you can imagine also that at some point servers could be like adding a tag or email clients could say whether the email is authenticated or not. And if it said it was, you could trust it because it would have been, you know, securely verified. So that's where we are with this, and I'm cool. I'm excited about it. Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, now, how widely adopted is this? I mean, do we have to consider that, or is that not an issue? Well, um, end users really don't have to do anything except sit back and wait a while. Um, it is, but the, ultimately, we're all users, right? Yes, yes. Well, the 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 spec is in place. It's been finalized, and you can imagine, I mean, among these big players, you know, anytime you see some weird word like, uh, you know, alignment types, it's like, what, you know, what <laughs> committee group chose that, you know? So it's like, okay. So, you know, it, it's, it's a significant accomplishment that all of these, these, these players who are competitors with each other also got together on the technical level and said, this is what we're all going to agree to. We can't all, I mean, we already have, you know, DKIM and SPF, which were like competing standards. Well, they said instead of choosing either one or trying to amalgamate them, they said, look, everybody likes their own thing. Let's just support them both because, okay. you know, so, some of them are in place and, and SPF is easy to do. So we don't need to choose. What we just need to do is, is we need some way of believing the authentication. Yes. <laughs> And, and that's and, not and pure. I, that's not just out of trust. You actually have a tech, need a technology to do that. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you need you need the technology, and you need to be able to say we're actually going to throw this away right. if it if, doesn't if, authenticate. And that's and the before, key. And that's the problem with SPF and everything else, and all these I, other authentication is. Yeah, if you were willing to throw away, it has to be one hundred percent or very very widely adopted. 
When my if my right. mom adopts it, otherwise I can use it. Otherwise, I won't get her email, right? No, or no, I'm, no. It's your mom's ISP. ISP. Okay. Yes. So, so it's S- it's SMTP server to SMTP got it, got server. It, got it. Of course, and so it's so it's point to point. So, so, so if the, all the big ISPs adopted, then we're good. Yeah, and it's going to happen, Leo. I mean, this is if eighty five percent of the valid email traffic on the net now contains this, but no one is using it. Right. We're just it's like it's like okay, we're we're all everybody is saying we're ready to go, but you know it just it, but it's it's time to commit now. And I think we're just at that point. I mean, this is a big change. This, you know, to be able to lock down email and require authentication, what's going to happen is the big guys are going to do it. And then that will put serious pressure on the rest of the industry right. because it'll be like, wait a minute, you're not sending authenticated email. I'd rather use somebody who is. Right. You know, because it'll be it'll become, you know, a, a value add. Or you for, could for, have a folder that says unauthenticated it's like a spam folder, but maybe a step yes. down from that. Yes, yeah. it, it could be. You know, uh, you know, use well. Y- y- yes, you could have a you could have a spam folder, or or a, that is an unauthenticated folder. And the beauty of that is, it's it's going to actually mean something. Right. The spam folder gets false positives, and then your no- normal inbox gets false negatives. Right. And so the beauty of this is your normal inbox would never receive an unauthenticated email. And so, again, having, having you know, a sender who's, who knew their email was going into people's unauthenticated folder is going to take, you know, do, move heaven and earth to <laughs> add authentication to their servers so that their email doesn't look second class. Will be it's, a, a little bit, it's a little bit like, like, like the extended validation uh, certificates, you know, GRC right. is now all EV, mm-hmm. and every time I, you know, I fire up GRC in a browser and it comes up with EV, I think, oh yeah, cool, I have that now. I I hope this works. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it's well. I mean, it's the best it, shot yet. And it's you know, this just shows how much inertia there is. Yeah. I mean, it's the system isn't so badly broken that right. no one uses it. It's just so badly broken that no one trusts it. Right. Right. And so many problems are caused by this. Right. I mean, so many, so many, you know, uh, uh, spoofing is, is causing so much problem. So the idea of being a, of having like authenticated inbox, right. that that's a big move Huge. forward. Yeah, yeah, and that can happen incrementally. I mean, not everyone has to support it. If 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 I knew that authenticated email was being flagged by my server and I and routed into a different inbox versus unauthenticated that's that's valuable to me and yeah. we can have that today yeah steve gibson's at grc.com that's where you can uh post a question for next week because we'll do a q a and i'm sure we'll get some questions about dmark uh we'll do a q a episode next week it's grc.com slash feedback for your questions grc.com slash health if you want to read his health postings and oh and G- there is a feedback page there too and i would love to have people Good who, uh, you know, either positive or negative experiences with, with, with low-carb stuff, please uh, please send me your feedback. Very good. And, of course, you go there to get SpinRight, the world's best yeah. hard drive, maintenance and recovery utility, and all the 16-kilobit versions of this show and transcriptions of this show, all 353 episodes, they're there. His show notes, 
We also make audio and video available on our website, twit.tv. This show, we do this every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 uh, UTC on twit.tv. Watch live. We'd love it if you watch live. But if you can't, don't worry. That's where, you know, there's always a recording available in audio or video, depending on your choice. And next week, uh, Q&A. Yep. Look forward to it. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Security now.